And good morning to you. It is Saturday, July 30th. And yes, I realize that it's not necessarily host Carla Hersena right out the gate here for the Lawn and Garden Journal. My name is Chris Sumner, morning show co-host here at the radio station. And yes, Carla, you are here. We're co-hosting today. Yes, I am here. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Carla. So wonderful to be together in studio with you. And every once in a while, we like to do a special email edition of the show and work through all of those questions that we get in over the course of the year to our email address. And we've got a ton of questions ready to go, but I want to hand it off to you and do like we always do and start the Lawn and Garden Journal with a pro- uh, with a poem. Well, thank you, Chris. And you know what? Gardening season's here. And I thought because it was a special event, um, I was given a poem to me um, a little while back again, and it just gives me a little bit of a smile. So I thought I would read it again. So please listen. This is a poem that was sent to me by Lebo, Manitoba. Hello, I'm Carla, the gardening girl. If you've got growing troubles, always give my number a whirl. I've been called the plant nurse and hopefully nothing worse, by calling you've made a right selection. So give me your garden question, and I'll do my best to find a cure because I love my plants, that's for sure. Was I born with a green thumb? Well, it looks like the same as my other one. When I'm gardening, I'm in a special world, so I'm in a lawn and garden type of girl. And when I'm gardening, my daily troubles are less, and I'm surrounded by nature. What a find! There's nothing too simple or too hard for a solution in my helpful mind, and I'll do my best to help one and all. Carla Hersina and Chris Sumner with you this morning on the Lawn and Garden Journal. Now, we aren't taking calls today because it is a special email edition of the show. We have a boatload of questions to get through. I would say, Carla, an entire inbox of email, right? (laughs) Well, you know what it is. And it's nice to be able to get some of the ones. But if you're a little shy, yes, it's nice to be able to get those ones that are in our inbox that we can help you out too. It is August long weekend. And like we want to do a couple of times a year, Carla, we're answering uh, email questions from the old Lawn and Garden Journal email address. And how about we get started because we have so many of them to try and get through today. And our, our first question, Carla, is from Sandra. And this is what she wrote. Can you tell me what's wrong with our apple tree? It bloomed nicely earlier this year, and then some branches were wilted, and it started turning brown. Now, that's all we have from Sandra, but I've got an idea of what it might be, and maybe there's some other apple tree issues you'd like to touch on too, Carla. Well, there's certain things because um, the number one thing that I'm kind of going to mind is that if you had early uh, leafing and early blooming things, it's some areas of where you are, we actually experienced a very late frost. So in some areas, it may occur that that's where the side of the tree maybe have gotten a little bit touched by some light frost, which would cause the darkening and then the crisping of some of the leaves. But the other aspect, especially with apple trees, is it could be showing early signs of fire blight which is a disease that is prone to your apple trees, so which causes the leaves and some branches just to, um, you know, uh, die one by one. So if at that is the case, uh, sometimes bringing a selection of the tree into your garden center, always remember in a plastic bag though, so that we can see through it in a plastic bag, 
that could be an indicator. But it would be interesting to see that how early in the stage that you saw that and if it was a continuance on the tree from in the last month or so. So that's probably a question that they would maybe want to send another little information or send some photos into. So, Carla, let's say hypothetically uh, we determine it is fire blight. And I know you've talked about fire blight extensively in the past on the Lawn and Garden Journal. What's the process of dealing with that yourself on your apple tree? Well, there is sort of no return when you do have fire blight. It's a slow detriment to the tree. So when you identify which branches have the fire blight, uh, use your pruners or your secateurs or your loppers, uh, do a bleach and water solution on them prior to doing your cuts and to do a cut into that to remove that diseased branch. Now, before you do a secondary cut, there's a second uh, limb or branching that's on it that's affected, you still want to do a, a second cleaning. Every time you go to do a new clean cut, clean your pruners or your secateurs. Is it fair to say that fire blight, uh, fire blight is quite contagious to an apple tree, like it's very easy to move it around the tree to different sections? It It is. Um, it is quite infectious that's on it, so it can transfer to other trees and shrubs. Sometimes we'll see it on, I think it's the cherry trees too as well, that's on it. But it is um, quite a disease that is spread by a bacteria that's on there. So, um, you know, once you see it, uh, you want to take action to remove the limbs. And what you can do to sort of uh, increase in the vigor of the plant is by um, fertilizing it at this time and trying to give it as much food and sustenance to help to remedy the situation but it might be just slowing slowing um, the disease down so if you do have a apple tree or cherry tree that does have fire blight is there any chance to save it if you do the pruning or is it like you suggested carla it might be just a slow death unfortunately for that tree yeah there is no cure for it um, by increasing the vigor of the plant, it is just a slow demise for that uh, tree, unfortunately. Um, there's a cycle, but then when there's a cycle of that, there may be an opportunity to maybe plant something else that's, um, that's as beautiful that can replace it. Well, thank you very much, Sandra, for sending in that question. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, between Carla and I, I'm guessing we hope it's not fire blight, right? <laughs> Well, let's hope it was light frost and not fire blight because we know that as we uh, head into August and everything, we are going to start to see the ripening of a lot of some of our fruiting trees, which is so good this year because, you know, going to the grocery store, you might find that things are a little bit more uh, costly. So if we can grow it our own, it's so much tastier. And we have some really good apple trees that are very hearty to our area that, um, you know, I'm just thinking of apple pies and <laughs> applesauce right now. <laughs> well, let's move on to Linda. Linda sent in this email question, and uh, I know a lot of folks love perennials because of the ease of care. And she wanted us to know this, Carla. I have a shaded garden and am looking for perennials that would do well with the plants she already has in that space. Here are the plants she has, Carla. She has bleeding hearts and ferns. Now, she says she wants something for the back of this space, so something maybe a foot tall or even higher. So with those factors taken into consideration, Carla, what would you suggest would be some good perennial options that are relatively tall and also good in shade? Well, combinations of that there you can go and look and this is one thing that if you're looking um you can she can look for tall 
astilbes. Now, astilbes come in different variants of heights. And because of that, you'll get maybe not the foliage showing, but the spikiness of the plumes that are above it, which is a really nice one to have. There is another one that is really, really pretty for a shade uh, item. And it is, it used to be called Simisifuga, but it's kind of been renamed as, um, I hope I can say it right, is Astea, is A-C-T-E-A. And it's got a beautiful foliage. Some of them come in green. Some of them come in this deep chocolate color with white florets that are on there. So that's probably a couple top ones. Um, maybe even venturing some of the ones that I'm thinking is uh, Anemones. Um, Anemones sylvestris, which has a be- beautiful, almost like um, uh, not daisy, yeah, probably daisy or dahlia type bloom that's on it. So that's probably a couple. Ah, there's one more. Eupatorium uh, Joe Pie. On sometimes when you're reading the stickers, it says uh, full sun to part shade. But this one, I find that if it's in a moisture site that's in it, Joe Pie will, in some very, very uh, varieties, can go to from four feet to six feet that's on it. And um, it's got this puff cloud of beautiful pink plumes that are on the top of it. So it does get quite dramatic. But you remember, the depth of your bed should be conducive to how much height that you're going to give on there too as well so um if i threw one more at you uh there's always the dramatic ligularia leaves that are very large and dramatic but the plume of them on some varieties like the rocket or desmondia the rocket is like a yellow spike that will go tall and give you a dramatic tall spiky effect a little more dramatic than what your stilbies are or if you want to go into some of the other varieties, they have large daisy flowers. But it's basically the leaf structure of the ligularia because the greens on the surface are um, of the surface are green. But when they kind of dance in the wind, the, these large and I'm talking leaves the size of large rhubarb, they have a beautiful burgundy or reddish undertone to the leaf structure. So those might be some teases to go check out at uh, your garden centers. Now, when I saw this question come into the inbox, Carla, from Linda, and I saw bleeding hearts, that took me back to my Grandma Bowie's garden at the front of her home. She had a huge bleeding hearts, uh, I would almost call it a bush, <laughs> in her front yard. Are, are you able to prune bleeding hearts in season, or could that be detrimental to the plant? No, uh, you know what? Sometimes if you do, it depends on the season. It depends on when you're doing it. I know that if it extreme temperatures, if you're doing it in extreme temperatures, there's a shock factor. But all perennials can do a little bit of a, a trim back. I usually like dicentra myself. I usually like to leave it alone because it looks beautiful and it's glory. Some In some sit- situations, I've actually seen where you get a natural little dieback on the dicentra as after its finished blooming period. So if that's the case, there's the opportunity for the deeper garden for those other foliage plants to sort of take over do you see uh folks interested in in bleeding hearts or or that style of plant anymore carla because to me it just seems i don't see them much in in newer uh residential developments it's more so in those established areas where i would i would suggest the grandmas and grandpas live yeah no actually you know we've always um yeah we carry a, a huge selection of perennial uh plants for landscaping and homegrowners right till fall and Dicentra this year, it's interesting because you do have your inquiries for when you have a, I would say the younger demographic gardeners coming in going, 
do you have such a thing as bleeding hearts? So I think the interest is peaked there that they now see it. And now even when you're going into some of the newer varieties, if your gardens aren't really, really big, there you can look for different varieties like Valentine and some of the smaller varieties that are a little bit more dwarf for smaller garden beds. So why not take the spectabulous old-fashioned pinks or the spectabulous whites for further back for large paces uh, um, and then bring a little bit of a show of those fernier ones to the front. So I think you're going to start to see a lot of the younger gardeners uh, taking an interest in these plants too as well. Carla Hersina and Chris Sumner with you on this July 30th. It's August long weekend, a special email question edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal. So again, we're not taking calls today, but next week, August 6th, Carla will be back and she'll take your calls then. It is a special email question edition of the show as we all enjoy August long weekend together. And Carla, we're going to head to a question from Dave and Anna. And I know usually early in the spring is when you receive questions about cedars and and what they should look like and that said this one just came in a couple of weeks ago and Dave and Anna had this question Carla columnar cedars we're going to say you know those big tall ones that you see at the front of homes um, theirs are getting so tall the branches are separating and are don't they're not looking as nice as when their branches are close together. And uh, Dave and Anna would like to know what you would recommend if there's a way to bind the branches together, maybe with some type of rope, or, or if you have a specific type of binding that would not cut into the bark and, and give more of a full look rather than that kind of dead space look that these cedars get when they really start filling out. Yeah, you know, um, I hear you with that, Dave and Anna, because A, I've got uh, some quite mature cedars myself, and the majestic um, spance that they give you in the landscape is beautiful, but they do get airy. They will usually start to defoliate uh, in the center core when there's not as much sunlight that's on there. And we saw some of it this year where a lot more of the taller ones were opening up on their branches because generally there's a full trunk from the bottom and then you get these multi-stems that are supposed to go quite vertical. But remember the amount of snow that we have puts a little bit of weight on those upper branches that causes them to open up. Now, we can retrain those because naturally when we saw that when spring hits, that cambium thaws out and we get that fluids going and the trees will sometimes do a slight straightening on themselves but in some cases where I think this is where it's happened with Dave and Anna is that it's probably opened up a little bit more than what they've wanted to so in that case and I've done it myself is uh, soft cording um, sometimes uh, I remember the days when my mom would say okay the pantyhose are done They're, it's time to cut them up and do stuff with them and we would use them for ties in the garden because they have that elasticity but there's actually we sell actually a sponge uh, it's like a twist tie but it's got a very thick sponge cording that's on it that you can use to gently pull those back up to give it the additional strength so hopefully that it recovers itself on the plant now if we talk about the density and wanting to thicken up a lot of our cedars, especially our uh, globe cedars and our upright cedars, depends on the stage of where you are. But light tip shearing on the outer tips of it will help to set the bud set further back on our branches so that when the new bud set opens, it causes a thicker, denser growth that's on there. Um, unfortunately, we've 
sort of past the time that we could do that this year. Uh, usually it's around, I, I, I usually call it Father's Day gift once the, the new growth has opened up on a lot of our cedars and it started to sort of harden off where it's not that uh, super soft feel is the time that we do tip cutting or tip cuts on um, a lot of our evergreens so that that bud set could be set a little bit further back on the little bit more of the older growth rather than the brand new growth and it would give you that density that's on there. So that's a little bit of a portion of a little bit of work but Chris I have to mention that I know that I uh, have defoliated completely on the bottom because my dogs are short. So they have removed <laughs> the bottom branches on there. And I know I try and tip cut the lower six feet. But, you know, if you have ones that are 20 and 30 feet t- tall, you, there's no way you're going to be able to shear them up that high. But in my mind, that's in there, the ones that are up higher are going to get the most sunlight. So they will be a little thicker. It's down below at higher visibility that you may want to give it that little bit of extra light shearing. Don't be dramatic. Don't go back hard on it. But uh, maybe that would be able to help. Now, uh, we're obviously not thinking about frost these days, Carla, because it's, you know, August long weekend. But looking ahead to fall and prepping your cedars for freeze up, can you remind us how or whether we should be using burlap to protect them? Because I've heard you talk about it before, and I know you have some some pretty passionate viewpoints on this to ensure we don't end up killing them. Yeah, I'm so happy you brought this up because it's one of the things that cedars they have a really hard effect. Once they're established, once they get anchored into the ground, there are like, you know, you don't have to wrap them once they get mature. It's in their early stages and you really have to be careful with it. The number one key with cedars and evergreens and junipers, that whole class of family, is assuring that there is proper moisture content in the ground so that those waxy cells can take up the moisture and when you're thinking of it, you're going, how can these little waxy cells hold that much moisture to get through the winter? But it helps that they can draw that and they lock that moisture into their cells so that if there's, it's just think of it as the reserve that you're going on a desert hike and you have to have that little bit of extra moisture in, the, in it that gives it to you. So that's number one. Number two, you can definitely burlap to cut the wind from the winter winds or the reflective uh, rays that bounce off a of snow that and let me explain when the rays hit the snow that causes this sort of mirror and brightening effect and actually a warming effect when it bounces off onto the foliage so what we want to do is we want to break that effect so if you want to put the stakes in the ground stake the put the stakes in the ground prior to freeze up do not wrap early when it is solidified that it is actually super cold out then you would go out wrap your stakes and staple the burlap to the stakes. I I don't like seeing them, made, uh, cedars, young cedars made into sausages because there's no air exchange that's on it. You've actually um, tightened it all up in there. The burlap should be held away from the branchings, about three or four inches, and leave the tops of the burlap open so that the heat that does warm in, in there is allowed, the coldness is allowed to go through, but it's the winter winds that aren't allowed to act as that desiccating factor against, um, you know, causing them to dry out. 
Dave and Anna, thank you very much for your question. We have one more here that we're going to get to uh, this segment before we take a break, Carla. And this is coming from Les and Sarah. I have a Madagascar plant that never seems to get more than six or so leaves. The leaves just keep dropping. Now, it's in a west window, which is not that great for light, but my only option. So my first question is, Carla, please review for us what a Madagascar plant is, and then how about you do your best to answer that question for Lesson Sarah? Okay. Well, the Madagascar, it could be in the Dracaena family, which is the long-branched plants that usually has one main stalk, and it looks like all these long, thin branches that are from it. And you will start to see that you'll get leaf drop on these because there's certain factors that you want to assure in for optimal growth for these tropical plants. And when we're talking about tropical plants, yes, they like bright light. They like um, as much good drainage as possible that's on it. So the questions I would probably ask are, is it in a pot that has the proper drainage? Because drainage is key in all plant matters. Uh, it's really hard when you get, and I know that uh, there's cute little pots that don't have drainage. I like to endorse those where you can do it as a drop pot that I throw my plant in a plastic pot. And if I want the cuter pot, I will place that plastic pot within the one that does not have drainage. So I can lift it out, water it. Once all that excess moisture is gone, I could put it back in the cute pot. Um, a, does it have drainage? If there's no drainage, uh, you can sometimes alleviate the moisture issues by if you have extra uh, drain. Uh, sometimes people use rock or perlite on the bottom so that if you're watering, that excess moisture is sitting in that rock or uh, other medium rather than with the soil. So overwatering can cause lack of foliage with leaf drop. But in the other side too, because there's always the switch side, underwatering can also cause that same effect that's on there. So you have to sort of find that little tweak medium that's on there. And again, the brighter the light that you have that's on your uh, Madagascar is probably the best thing that's for it. Uh, So if it's in a west window, make sure that it's not sitting directly in front of a window, especially if it hits that west light, because that could be a little bit of a shock that's on it. And when we're talking about soil in percentage to foliage, Uh, I would probably, if you were there, I would probably also be asking, did you transplant it lately? And what size of pot did you bump it up to? Because most tropical plants, when you're getting them, uh, let's say it's in a four-inch pot, you have to look at to see what percentage of soil to root that you have in there is you see girdling of roots at the top or are they roots coming out the bottom holes? Those may be indicators that, yes, you need to transplant them upwards to a bigger pot. But in a lot of cases, tropical plants love to be pot-bound. They love to have their roots sort of snuggled tight so that they can give the best performance upwards and not concentrating on developing more roots to give that upper canopy at a later date. Well, Lesson Sarah, thank you very much for your question. You also uh, gave me the opportunity to learn what a Madagascar plant is. I'm Chris Sumner alongside Carla Hersina. Yes, you are listening to the Lawn and Garden Journal. It's a special email question edition of the show on this August long weekend. And again, with that in mind, we are not taking calls today, but next weekend, Saturday, August 6th, Carla will be back. 
and she will be taking your calls like she always does. And good morning. It's Saturday, July 30th, August long weekend. I'm Chris Sumner, co-hosting today with your usual host, Carla Hersina from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. It's a special email question edition of the show. We always get tons of email in, in addition to all of the calls that we get on the program, and we'll get right back to them here, Carla. This one is is coming from Karen, and this is the question. My newly purchased latte petunias and super petunias, which I bought, they were uh, the ones with the ivory with coffee-colored stripes. Now they've turned mauve. Any known reason for the color change, and is there any possible way that you can change them back? Well, that is an interesting one because in certain instances, um, and hydrangeas come to mind too as well, is sometimes soil conditions and pH levels will cause certain plants to flip back from one color or not to achieve other colors that they're supposed to be. So um, watch maybe if it's fertilizing. Sometimes if you're doing too much fertilizer or if you're too high in your pH or too rich, that will affect growth and it will also affect your blooming periods that's on there. So that could be part of it too as well. And in some instances too as well, um, if there are some newer plants that are on the market, there is a, uh, sometimes a throw that uh, even on the same plant, you will get different color tones of what it's supposed to be versus what the first picture that it comes out to be showing. So sometimes you get a little bit of a modeling of different color combinations and that has to do with the genetics of that plant. So I wish I could help you other ways on that, but that's probably the two things that probably comes to mind. I suspect it may be uh, soil related or condition related that's on there. Now, I uh, I have petunias. Uh, I've done them in uh, pots for years and I find they can get pretty gangly as the summer goes on, Carla. Uh, are they prunable or, or what should I be doing so that they're not looking, well, let's be honest, kind of terrible? <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's it, they get like that because they're growing and annuals have that energy that they're going to keep on giving you that extra wow factor, but there is care and maintenance in it. So I always endorse that if you're doing a little bit of a light trimming or pinching that's on it is stop and you can take a look at it. You're all going to go look at your plants afterwards. If you pull one stem, you can generally see if you follow the main line of where the leaves are coming from, it becomes like a branch. What you want to do is stop that branch from getting longer and everywhere that you go back on that branch that you see sets of leaves, those are potential nodes for new branch development. So if you stop that from getting longer and longer, the plant has no other choice but to start producing more side branches. And when we get more side branches, we're going to get more flowers, which is what we want. So keep an eye on it. And uh, deadhead too as well, depending on the style of the plants that you're doing. And on some cleaning, like your supertunia varieties, some supertunia varieties are self-cleaning. And there's other ones that you literally have to go and do a little bit of a pinch set. Now, the deadheading portion is just not removing the flower itself. You have to go back to where the flower was attached to. It almost like if I pull the blossom off, it looks like almost like a green daisy that's left behind. So that little green daisy will sometimes start getting a little bit of the center green 
but the center green portion is where the seed development is going to take place. That's where you want to snip that off. Is In the plant's um, plan of life is to produce a flower, and once its flower is gone, it says, okay, bye-bye flower, now I have to produce my seeds to keep myself for my next generation going. So if we kind of say, okay, we're going to take your seeds away, it's got to create more flowers. Thank you for your question there, Karen. We're going to move on to a question from Candice. Earlier in the season, Carla, some of the leaves on my hydrangeas started turning brown, then black, and fell off. Now, this wasn't happening in all the areas of this bush, just some toward the front. Now, Candace looked this up online, and it said maybe it was a bacterial blight or something called anthracnose, which I understand Candace hadn't heard of before. What do you think, based on what Candace has shared with us, Carla, and is there anything that she can do about this with her hydrangeas? Yeah, um, it could be anthracnose. If it is, uh, generally when you're getting a little bit of a disease, diseases are sort of incumbent of um, moisture, uh, high temperatures uh, cooled by, um, followed by some cool temperatures are perfect for creating disease effects. So if it is the anthracnose that's on there, um, again, encouraging the vigor of the plant, uh, maybe doing an application of a copper spray or putting some garden sulfur in around the plant would help remedy it. But Chris, it depends on where and what time of season where she noticed the darkening. So that same effect that we mentioned frost before, hydrangeas could also, if it was particularly on one side, could be showing the same side that they had a light tipping of maybe some frost damage that's on there. We can't uh, forget about that portion of it. And the other portion is if it's always the front side, and I know that uh, I don't want to lay blame on maybe a household dog or a visiting dog, but check <laughs> the level of what is that because a little bit of doggy spray can cause darkening and crisping of leaves too as well. So um, there's another play on being maybe outside with pet- pets a little bit more this season. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when it comes to uh, comes to hydrangeas, there, Carla, are you finding that those are still a relatively popular perennial? Oh my gosh, we could talk hydrangeas till till the moon comes out because <laughs> a the diverse. I love you. Just you know, uh, we have my favorite one here. It's called vanilla strawberry. Um, I just, I my heart was just palpitating a few weeks ago because we did a little reno and. Our vanilla strawberry hydrangea, which is eight or nine years old, that's as tall as my five-foot stature, uh, we had to lift it out. And can you imagine a root ball four feet by four feet being lifted and moved over? And I felt like the expectant grandmother going, oh, my gosh, be careful, be careful. But, uh, yes, hydrangeas are probably the easiest plant that I just think has the wow factor in the garden because there are so many a different selection. It's like when you're thinking of the old Annabelle romantic big white ball orb flowers that you get from it. But now there are so many different twists. Uh, not, I shouldn't say it because there is one that's called twist and shout. <laughs> but uh, there are so many different textures of them, whether you're wanting the conical shape or the ball shape. And there's even the the diversity or the development of creating ones that are different heights. So it's almost that same conversation where I said that we wanted to have that big, beautiful 
um, dissenter that your grandma had, maybe at the back of the bar, uh, border bed where it looks like this wow factor. But when you draw your eye into bigger, uh, deeper garden beds, it's nice to have a little bit of a tease up front too to give that that balance. So now hydrangeas come in a shorter stature so that there is that pop from the front of the border to the back of the border too as well. Well, Carla, we can't have a lawn and garden journal in the middle of summer and at least mention tomatoes. We got to mention tomatoes. <laughs> so it's August long weekend. We know lots of folks throughout the province will have already been harvesting their cherry and maybe some early beefsteak variety tomatoes. What should we be thinking about right now when it comes to tomatoes in the garden and ensuring we're going to have enough for all those BLTs, tomato sauce and salsa we want to make later this year? Well, at this point, we want to still make sure that we're giving them the extra food that they want. Uh, Our tomato plants, uh, just in the last little month, some people have reported that they're having a little bit less production because I think it's heat-induced that's on there. So uh, add, you know, or if you're making sure that we have some pollinators out there, make sure that you're actually giving them a little bit of extra calcium that's in there. Uh, there's a really good product called Talk Tomatoes that helps to promote that vigor and growth and maybe shelter some of it. I know that in some instances, if they get really bushy, we're taking some of those suckers out to open things up a little bit. But if we still remain to be very, very hot, um, maybe don't remove as many foliage on it to maybe shelter some of that fruit a little bit more. But even distribution of moisture of watering is key for prevention of cracking and blossom end rot. And we should also mention too, and I shouldn't speak for you, Carla, so I'll I'll pose this in a question. Important to water your tomatoes so that you're watering close to the ground and not allowing that soil to splash up, right? Correct, correct. And it's so hard because people, when you're looking at it, you're going, well, how can I prevent that if we get this pounding rain where the rain itself will pound and you'll get a backsplash from maybe some of this from that's held over in the soils bouncing back. So my dad taught me this years ago. Hello, dad. Um, I'm thinking of you is he used to take a bunch of his grass clippings and dry them out. He used to fluff them up in a, in a, a big container. So it's almost like a dry grass straw. And he and mom would go out and lay this on underneath their tomatoes. So it created this bedding effect so that when they did water onto this dry grass, that the water seeped into the ground and not caused a backsplash up. And also watering early in the day allows the time for the foliage to dry out and it allows the plants to absorb the moisture in the cooler temperatures rather than fighting with the quick evaporation of having to do it later in the evening or in the hot afternoon sun. If you do find some fruit on your tomato plants that appear to have blight or that uh, end rot, is it best to just remove that fruit and compost it, or what would your suggestion be? I probably would not compost it. I would probably, A, and I'm probably one, too, that if I pick a nice red one thinking I've got the prime elite one, and then I flip it over and go, okay, I've got some of it. Um, They're still edible. You can cut the lower portion off, garbage that section of it that has the the diseased portion of it but um, enjoy the top portion portion of it it's still tasty and i have to ask carla have you had your first garden fresh uh bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich yet i have to say i have not oh Oh. you know what no i have to say i have (laughs) at home 
you had to correct me there because at <laughs> home I'm a little bit the shoemaker son. My tomatoes didn't get in as early as everyone's there. But there's a little secret that we do retain a few of the large patio tomatoes here. So when I bring my granddaughters into here, um, we have a habit of walking down that aisle and grabbing a couple tomatoes off the plants. <laughs> so, yes, I have. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Carla Hersina and Chris Sumner with you on this Saturday morning of August Long Weekend. It's a special email question edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal. Yes, August Long Weekend. It's been a special email edition of the show with host Carla Hersina answering questions from all those emails that you've been sending in so far during this season. Now, Carla, you're going to be back in studio next week answering questions over the phone. And we certainly have had some very hot and humid weather over the month of July. And just as we get set to wrap things up for this Saturday, you had a few thoughts about taking advantage of those cooler days over the next little bit. Well, if you definitely have those cooler days, it's nice to be able to enjoy the backyards Because gardening, there's no better thing than gardening because you get so much serenity, you get peace, you get inspiration from your gardens. And think of the exercise and good health. And not only that, gardening is good for the soul. I couldn't agree more. Carla Hersina from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. As always, your host on the Lawn and Garden Journal. I'm Chris Sumner, co-hosting this weekend only as we answer your email questions that have come in since the start of the season. Carla, back in studio next Saturday, of course, answering your phone calls with the questions and answers that you're looking for. We do hope you have a wonderful August long weekend, and we will talk to you soon.